Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm Paige Donner, the host and producer. This food and wine show is being brought to you directly from Paris, France. Here, we give you a taste of this delicious world with all its colorful and diverse personalities that make up the Paris culinary landscape. So, sit back and relax and enjoy Paris good food and wine. Welcome to season six of Paris Good Food and Wine. For the kickoff episode of our sixth year in podcast production, we take you deep into the heart of Bordeaux. For many, Bordeaux is a wine mecca. But for some, it's as intimidating as facing a Master of Wine exam. For this late August trip, Paris Good Food and Wine takes you to Pomerol and Saint-Emilion on the right bank, and then the Medoc, namely Saint-Julien, Poyac, and Saint-Julien-Bechevel on the left bank. One of the conversations that has stayed with me from this tasting tour and press trip I led to world-famous Bordeaux estates is the following. When it comes to music or food or films, people aren't shy or ashamed to express their tastes and preferences. So why are they when it comes to wine? If I like rock music and you like classical music, does that mean one of us has superior taste over the other? So why then, when it comes to wine, do we seem to immediately categorize people's level of sophistication in terms of whether they prefer a Margot to a Contreu, a Medoc to a Saint-Emilion? When you reflect upon a person's taste in wine in this context, the whole superimposed pecking order of wine does start to feel a bit absurd. But more to the point, this accepted form of intellectual and sensorial snobbery is perhaps blocking a lot of potential wine lovers from ever taking their first sip. On that note, I was able to spend two days in the Bourg and Bly regions in July this summer. These Bordeaux regions, known as much for their whites as their reds, are often overlooked on the world stage when it comes to Bordeaux wines. But they shouldn't be, because they have oodles to offer. In fact, for their September issue, the French wine critics, Betan and Desauve, curated a whole magazine just on these two appellations singing the praises of these crisp, fresh, and often surprising wines. Another hot topic of discussion among these esteemed Grand Cru Classé Bordelais wine estates was the trending topic of natural wines, or vin naturel. Without going too deeply into this topic here and now, the one comment I heard that seems to sum up a centuries-old wine region's candid thoughts about this is, what do you get when you do nothing to wine? The van natural philosophy being to do not unto wine. Vinegar. You get vinegar when you do nothing to wine. However, far be it for me to be anything more than an intrigued eavesdropper on this ongoing conversation. If you'd like to hear what Alice Faring has to say on the matter... Catch her on KCRW's Good Food Show, September 7th edition. You can also find our Paris Good Food and Wine show from last season, episode 41, that focuses on Van Naturel. So, on that note, 
I turn to my second interviewee. She's the author of The Chinese Wine Renaissance. The book, released by Penguin earlier this year, has already been shortlisted for a Roterer Wine Writers Award. We hear from the 36-year-old first-time author, Janet Wang, about China's thousands of years old history with wine. This is the first book of its kind to be written and published in English. Entering onto a tabula rasa is a rarity in the wine world, where all and sundry have written tomes about the elixir. But this book is the first of its kind on its topic, hence there's no context in which to compare it. If you're interested in tasting Chinese wines, Janet will be importing a container of wine to the UK, where she resides, this fall and hosting wine tastings. Please see the show notes for a link to her website. Season 6 of Paris Good Food and Wine has been generously brought to you yet again by IOT Shipping. Never lose track of your assets. Real-time monitoring with smart sensors by temperature, movement, and geolocation throughout the transport process. Contact them at iotshipping.xyz. This kickoff episode of Season 6 has been brought to you also by Bordeaux Food and Wine. See more on BordeauxFoodandWine.com. Contact Bordeaux Food and Wine for wine tasting and wine excursion bookings. BordeauxFoodandWine.com. I'm Paige Donner, host and producer of Paris Good Food and Wine. Happy to be back with you for Season 6. So all that's left to do now is open up your favorite bottle of wine, pour yourself a nice tall glass, kick back in your comfiest of reclining chairs, and have a listen to Paris, good food and wine. IOT Shipping. IOT Shipping uses the Internet of Things technology to track and trace your value assets throughout the transport process. Data is monitored by temperature, geolocation, and movement so that you always know where your value assets are and in what condition they are in. Contact them for more information and for a quote at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. Be sure to check out our website at parisfoodandwine.net. So, Panis, this, this winds up a whole extravaganza of wine tasting on both the left and right banks here in Bordeaux. And I have to hand it to you. You get all the credit for the brilliant strategy of doing a 2016 comparative tasting at all the three Leovilles in the in the Medoc. So let's hear just some of your, you know, just some of your first thoughts about that, because I know you're going to go in detail on that subject on your on in the Wine Chronicles, your your blog, and also for other outlets. Um, but 
what did what what was your first reaction to the Poifare Lascas and Leoville Langoa? Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, thanks a lot. It was so wonderful, first of all, to be able to visit these great estates mainly by a boat, you know, and then take a van to them, respectively, off the cool ports that that exist. Um, and it was a great uh, time to compare Leoville Lascas, Leoville Barton, Langoa Barton, and Leoville Poifare. These are three estates uh, that uh, I think in the seventeen century were one the they were called the grand leoville estate and so and their their vineyards sort of are you know next to each other in many ways so and yet they're made in different ways so i think what's amazing uh, when when people try great bordeaux wines like these is not to say this one's necessarily better than the other but they're each having a different philosophy and to taste them yourself and, and have a great experience comparing a one vintage because that way you can really see that in the same vintage with with vines that are not too far apart from each other you get three different visions and i'm glad that you pointed out that they were at one time would in the early 18th century one estate and then they didn't get sort of divided into three until what about 1820 or yeah. so there was like the first person to divide it was in 1820 1821 i don't remember exactly which one of those years but uh, a fellow named hugh barton whose um, uh, later relatives still are there today the barton family they own uh, langoa and leoville barton and the actual chateau is langoa but the vineyards are leoville barton and so w why is that important to note is because the Leoville estate was ranked a second growth in a, in a very famous classification that still exists today from 1855. And it's a tremendous marketing tool for Bordeaux, uh, even though it's kind of, you know, one might ask if you're going to go visit Bordeaux in 2019, do you rely on an 1855 tour guide? And yet it endures. That's one of the most succinct ways I've ever heard uh, explained the 1855 Grand Cru Classé classification. Awesome. Now, I know you have you have a huge amount of history here in Bordeaux. You've been writing about Bordeaux and, well, the wines of France for 20-plus years. So having your perspective is really, really enlightening. It's, it's like ped it's pedagogic, yeah, really. What are some of the top notes that we can look for? I know each of these 2016s have their own unique expression. That's, that's clear. But what are some sort of top notes that, that people can anticipate? Well, I mean, in terms of tasting profiles, uh, we can anticipate wines that have very long finishes, uh, very, very elegant expressions of Cabernet, because we're on the left bank here. We're, we're Saint-Julien, left bank, Cabernet-driven wines. Of course, they each have Merlot in them, and to some extent, depending on the Chateau, some Petit Verdot and Cabernet Franc. But really, the two main grapes are Cabernet and Merlot, and Cabernet dominates. So you're going to get... I know we always say this, but it's so true. It's like a lead pencil, sort of like a graphite note. And, and it all depends on the purity. So you can get very pure expressions of that graphite, um, black fruit, sometimes red fruit. And I think there's a little more red fruit in 16 because there's a little brighter acidity in this vintage. And yet you have that rich opulence of a ripe vintage. So you get ripeness and briskness. And that's what makes 16 such a special vintage. It was interesting, too, at Las Cas, how they, they brought out their pot and sack. Um, so Santa Steph, right? Potensac is actually an appellation called Medoc, which is, um, for many people, like they would say the least interesting after, you know, uh, you have all these famous appellations, Saint-Julien, Poyac, um, Margot, which have the classified growths. But Medoc is a very broad appellation, and it, it can come from grapes that are grown in any part of the Medoc. 
the left bank. So basically, uh, the owners of Leoville-Escaz, the current owners, have also owned Potensac for many years. It's the Delon family. And Potensac was once honored in 2003 as one of the nine top Cru Bourgeois wines, as Cru Bourgeois Exceptionnel. Unfortunately, that classification was annulled because of court cases. This happens sometimes in Bordeaux. And so after that was an annulment, all, many of those nine top wines just refused to even be considered Cru Bourgeois. So they're all strong brands. And so Potensac is a particularly strong brand, which echoes Leo Villescaz, but at a smaller cost. You know, you could buy Potensac for like 25 euros or 25 bucks, dollars in the U.S., and it's a really great deal, and I highly recommend it. It was not for nothing. It was picked one of the nine top Cru Bourgeois exceptionnels in 2003. Now, am, am I mistaking things, or did that have a real strong showing of Merlot in it, which is why it was so kind of unusual for, for the left bank? Sure. Actually, you're right. In the left bank, I mean, we always associate it with Cabernet Sauvignon because of the uh, massive movement over many, many millions of years ago. The gravel from the rivers tended to collect in the Medoc on the left bank, whereas on the right bank, you end up having limestone and clay. And there wasn't much that same influence on the right bank as you had on the left. But there are lots of spots in the Medoc that have a lot of clay. And as we learn when you study about wine, clay is a colder soil than gravel. Gravel tends to retain the heat of the sun, reflect it back onto the plant, hot soil. And so Cabernet Sauvignon, which ripens rather slowly, you want to have a hot soil. That's why Cabernet Sauvignon can thrive in Napa Valley and in California and sunnier climates like Chile, because it, it, you know, could use that heat. Whereas Merlot needs, it, it ripens quite quickly, so you need a colder soil. And so everyone thinks right bank clay, Merlot, Saint-Emilion. But in the Medoc, you also have a lot of soils that are clay driven. And so they tend to be in appellations like Moulis, which are inward, away from the river where there's less gravel, more clay, and also in Medoc areas, Medoc, AOC Medoc appellation. So yeah, there is more Merlot in the Potensac as a percentage than you would find in Leoville Cas, for example. That stood out. That really stood out for me. It was also interesting too, you know. Again, top notes of the how does the how did the Lascaz 16 show to their last to the Lascaz 18. Yeah, it was so cool that um, some of the estates pulled out their 18, which has gotten such tremendous press. And with reason, 18 is a quite an exceptional vintage in that the alcohol levels were pr- pretty high, the highest since 2010, sometimes higher. And yet you also had a good acidity to balance it. So it was not uh, a flabby vintage at all. It was a very successful, very unique vintage. In fact, one of the fellows at Le Velasquez was even saying it was a UFO vintage, you know, not yet seen before. And I, I see what he means. I think at Lascaz it's a much more exuberant vintage than 16. But for people who love classic elegance, I think they might favor 16 over 18. But really, it's early days. These are both young puppies. And the 18's still in the barrel. It's not even in a bottle yet. So we should talk about this in maybe 10 years' time, you know, if not five. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, let's, uh, oh, anything else about, like, about Poifere or, or sure. Leoville, I mean, I cool. Barton? Yeah. I mean, when you visit these estates, it's fantastic because you go to Leoville, you go to Langoa, the, the chateau, and then they serve you Leoville Barton and Langoa. And, and you have this beautiful sort of Irish sort of um, uh, family welcome with a certain, you know, Anglo-Saxon sense of humor that you don't find with the French, you know. And it, it's 
it's really fun. I mean, one example is they showed us these bread ovens that were there since the 17th century. And, you know, the, the owner is Anthony Barton. And his daughter, Lillian, who welcomed us, says, well, you know, we joke that, uh, that we could make Tony's pizza there. But the problem is my father, Anthony, doesn't like pizza and he doesn't like being called Tony. So, I mean, that kind of wit is great. And they have a beautiful garden. And then you go to Leoville Poiffere and it's much more, um, there's a really nice um, educational aspect to that visit. They have the soil profiles. They have a little garden with Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot. And they actually showed us the levels of ripeness at this stage in late August. And we see that Cabernet Sauvignon is really not ripe yet. Merlot is actually kind of sweet. It's getting there. And so that was really cool. And then at Louisville Escaz, we just enjoyed this fantastic view uh, of the river. And he was stressing how, you know, you could estates that can see the river are advantageous because they have a microclimate. So then when you have a gel or a frost, it doesn't affect them as much as, you know, Bordeaux estates that are in inward and it gets colder more quickly and more easily. Yeah, that's, yeah, fun, fun, fun. Okay, so now let's drive up the road about five minutes to come test. <laughs> now that yeah, so the tasting with Nicola Glumino, yeah. He's a he's a master. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah definitely all agreed. Now, um this is going to be sort of probably the most um the the most maybe this the silliest aspect, but but we all commented on it. They're taking the contest's face off the label. Yeah, that's too bad. I want to start a hashtag say bring the contest or bring back contest or something like that, you know. <laughs> well, we had a better one last night. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. I mean, it's too bad because the, the reserve de la contest is has a little beautiful sort of old school style painting of a contest and that's removed and the reason why they're doing a new label in starting in 2017 is that you know he wants to make it similar to the Pichon Contest de la Lande first wine so they look similar and they also have a gold capsule but for many of us and I mean other writers and other people who love the wine we, we're gonna miss that contest <laughs> so Personally, I, for me, their 2018 was just the absolute rock star. I mean, for me, I mean, I loved all of it, and that was quite a, um, a, it was a broad tasting. I mean, we didn't just taste one or two wines, we tasted uh, six or seven. But the 2018 um, contest really... Yeah, two takeaways from that tasting. One is that power of his second wine. We were just talking about the Comtesse taking her away from the label. Well, we're talking about the second wine of the Chateau. And a lot of Bordeaux Chateaus have second wines, meaning that they use younger vines that are not giving you grapes that are as ripe or as, as perfect for the first wine, so they put it in the second wine. And a sign of a great Chateau is when the second wine can rival some first wines of other chateaus. And that's the case with Reserve de la Comtesse. So those were th we had three of those. We had this 18, 17, 16. And then we had Pichon Comtesse de la Lande, the first wine. And 18, as I said earlier, was kind of a warm vintage and you got higher alcohol levels. But interestingly enough, at Pichon Comtesse, the alcohol level between 16 and 18 wasn't much different. And you also had this extra opulence in the 18 that really probably edges out the 16. It's probably a better wine. Again, it's early days, but that was truly magnificent. And the 16 was also very good. And the 17 wasn't bad at all. I mean, people shouldn't forget about the 17. It's sort of unhappily sandwiched between two sort of star vintages. <laughs> good point. Excellent, excellent point. Yeah. All right. So um, just just wrapping up the day on, uh, on in that neck of the woods, the the wines at Bechevel are always absolutely outstanding. But 
But they have this added dimension now of that beautiful art exhibit of the kahle, which are like the little, you know, fishing cabins that are so emblematic of the Garonne River. So I don't know, what, talk to any part of or all of or a little bit of whatever you want to that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That was so much fun, Paige. I mean, we were actually going along, visiting these estates on the Garonne and then the Dordogne. And as we're going down these this, this river, the rivers, we see these fishing cabins. And that's so emblematic of Bordeaux. And so when you go to this f- famous estate, Beche- Bechevel, which, whose name originates from an old sort of French, or I don't know if it's Gaelic or French or whatever, but Bessé la voile, meaning lower your sail, because at that time sailboats would go by the chateau and there was an admiral and they would lower the sail in honor of the admiral. And so this was amazing because they had this exhibit of these fishing cabins. And so it all comes together because Bordeaux in French is a Bordeaux. It's on the border of water, so Bordeaux. And so it all comes together. These rivers brought these famous gravel uh, stones to the Medoc. I mean, the water is so essential to Bordeaux. And it just this exhibit is really worth seeing because it's so cool. It's on top of the barrel um, aging cellar, and, and you have a wonderful vision of both art and wine. Absolutely. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And they're, they're, they're 15s and they're 16s. I mean, I just love, you know, back-to-back like that. That's really... Yeah. I mean, he was he was also uh, showed us a 10, which is great because what happened in 17 is they revamped their cellar space and they were having more precise vineyard pickings and also parcel by parcel vinification. So you notice the difference between their 18 and the 10. I, I often compare 10 and 18 because both of these vintages are pretty high in alcohol, very opulent styles. 10 had a little more acidity, and I tend to prefer 10 over 18 on a general level. But at Bechevel, you didn't have that more pre- greater precision back in 2010. So their 18, to me, really outclasses their 10 in that sense. It's more precise. It's more. It's also opulent. And they're making really the best wine they've had in ever. I mean, you know, at least in modern memory. Wow, that is <laughs> that's a big statement. That's great. That's a, the a, people are going to be happy to hear that. I'm sure. All right, so now let's let's go over to the um, the right bank. Yeah, right bank. Where, yeah, so the two were, um, let's start with Nenan. So there were some things that really stood out for me there. I guess that, like, trying to do that blind tasting and and putting the the wines into their respective years, which wasn't, um, there was a few that were were easy, but there were a couple that were actually almost, ident- there were two that were almost identical. So those, yeah. I think, were a little bit difficult. But what stood out for you at, at that tasting and that, and that visit? Because that was like a whole, almost like a parkour. What it stood out for me on one level, and this is uh, always a, a good thing to keep in mind when you're blind tasting, is you could make a real fool of yourself. I mean, I'm just being a little facetious, but you know, uh, you know, anyone who thinks, oh yeah, I know wine, they're going to be you know humbled by blind tasting. So uh, it's true that the 2006 and 2007 Nanans had the same alcohol content, same acidity, but I was thinking the seven might have been the five because it was so charming and nice. But it's obviously one of those wines had a little more depth, and that turned out to be the five. Thankfully, that was my second choice as the 2005. But but yeah, it was just wonderful. And you see a progression of quality. I mean, the 98, which we all pretty much guessed was the oldest wine, was not very good. And I, I don't know if it was a problematic bottle, but really they've fine-tuned their winemaking at Nenan because it wasn't always brilliant. And I think in the recent years since the Delon family bought it, these are the same owners of Leo Velasquez and Potensac. They've really improved the game of this estate. And it's, it's gotten much better in the past, I would say, 10 years or so. 
Well, talking about old vintages, what about that 70, the mystery bottle? And then, and then we had to sort of, again, we had to guess the vintage on that. But when they finally revealed it as, the, as a 1970, I mean, that just kind of, that one blew me away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was really good. I mean, I think 1970 is, uh, they like to, people like to say old school vintage because the, the harvest, the, the yields were higher than average than they are today. Um, you had a much higher proportion of grapes used to press to make wine. Alcohol levels were lower. There was not as much concentration. And yet, that vintage is lovely. And it, it really is lovely throughout. I've had always positive experiences in 1970. Uh, Nainan was not particularly well known in 1970. And yet, this was a lovely wine. It wasn't just alive, but it was kicking, as, as uh, one of our uh, tasters said. And I think it was a lovely reminder that you shouldn't forget these older vintages. I mean, that can be very, very tasty. True, true. And then, so then we, um, we all, we, well, we all could, we could have actually walked over to Cheval Blanc, but we piled into our trusty little van and did the two-minute jaunt over to, or maybe five-minute jaunt over to Cheval Blanc, which, so Pierre Olivier just really jam-packed so much information. Yeah. But what are some of the things that really, some, some of the gems that stuck in your mind? Well, I just thought it was so cool that he took so much time. I mean, two and a half hours. I was I was watching, you know, the time go by, and it wasn't. It was going by very quickly because he was explaining so much about the vineyard and how important it is to work in the vineyard, and and he was stressing much less the vinification. Even though in 2011 we saw that at that year they installed a new uh, vat room with these. Uh, different size uh, vats and it was all very modern and, and exceptional but he was stressing how they know each and every plot of their vines and and they're really careful about ripeness and he doesn't want to he kept saying i like to pick al dente and i know that some of the so-called modernists would sometimes criticize that sort of philosophy of picking grapes al dente but the way pierre olivier described it is that it's like cooking a fish if you're going to cook a fish just right well you better be darn sure that the quality of the fish is right because then you're going to have to cook it a little more to cover any errors to, to sort of cover things up and so he's saying that if you're going to make if you're going to pick grapes that are optimally ripe, that means they're going to be a bit al dente. They're not going to be super ripe. And if the quality of the grape is there, well, then you're going to have a great, great wine. And Cheval Blanc is a great wine. Oh, that it's, it's la classe. La classe, the Petit Cheval, Cheval Blanc. You know, the other thing that I found absolutely fascinating, too, was how they managed their, their they don't have an on-site cooperage, obviously, but how he was explaining, well, we let our coopers, you know, we give them absolute free hand, but this is how we... You know, so yeah, let's go back into that. That is amazing because they use 100% new oak. And I loved what he said, you know, because sometimes the whole oak issue is, is quite misunderstood. I've misunderstood it in the past as well. And, you know, sometimes it's, you just say, well, it's a question of how much oak you have, what percentage you use. And he told us the story of uh, at, at some point there were vintages at Cheval Blanc where the management felt that they were a little too oaky. And so you had Pierre Lourton, who's the general manager, uh, telling uh, Pierre, Olivier that uh, maybe we should reduce the percentage of, of new oak and he says no we don't want to reduce the problem we want to just get the right oak and that was a brilliant answer and so what they do is every year they taste each vat each oak barrel with the cooper that made it to see how it is and then based on that actual tasting experience because they replace the oak every year because it's 100% new oak they get a new batch of oak or they get a new barrel or they keep the same barrel if they're happy with it. So they're very careful about that and they leave the expertise to the coopers because as he said, we're not coopers, they're the coopers. We know how to taste, they know how to make oak barrels. 
Yeah, yeah, it was so. And, and I remember, I remember the comment. It's like, well, if we have eighty barrels and that we ordered from them last year, and we have we do the tasting and we're happy with sixty-five of them, then we say, well, we'll order sixty-five of you know uh, new barrels from you again this year exactly exactly to those specifications of what you did and then apparently i guess their coopers just take these these minute notes and really really detail how they're like aging no not aging but forming the wood and 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 how they're sealing it and i mean it was so and each barrel was numbered each barrel was numbered so it's again it's the attention to detail so that explains quality, if you give that attention to detail, uh, wine does not make itself. And he was not the only one to take a dig at natural wines. And, you know, I, I'm all for, you know, people who have visions and you want to make wine that's sulfur free and all that. But he was saying that the name natural wine is a little bit misleading because wine doesn't make itself. And, and Cheval Blanc is a very good example, as were the other chateaus. You need to pay attention to detail. You need to, you know, take care of the vine properly. You need to be careful in the winemaking. It doesn't happen naturally. It, vinegar happens naturally. So, yeah. Yeah, actually, I think, I think that was Lillian who said, yeah, you want natural wine? New <laughs> vinegar, yeah. <laughs> Again, that Irish wit, that Irish wit. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up here and I'm going to say, look, if you want to hear Panis's very expert, very insightful and very depthful, knowledgeable tasting notes from all of these, including Cheval Blanc, then you have to go to winechronicles.com. And then where else? I mean, I know you write for Decanter. You write for so many. Well, I'm doing a feature for uh, Club Onologique. It's a new magazine uh, that has only had, I think, four editions so far. It's a luxury magazine, sort of a coffee table magazine with great design pictures um, that you'll find at business class lounges at airports and at high-end hotels all around the world. And I'm doing a feature, Bordeaux by Boat, because this was, uh, we did all this thanks to the crew of the Tango, and we were able to tango our way uh, up the river and, and then dock uh, in a strategic location so that these chateaus were not that far. And so we were able to just drive over there pretty quickly. And the added benefit was that, you know, there's no designated driver. After you have all these, you know, you know challenging tasting experiences, it is kind of tiring. You can just relax on the boat. Okay, great. So winechronicles.com, Panos... Yeah, that's me, Panos Cacaviatos. And be sure in Wine Chronicles to look at my notes on 2018 from Barrel. I did a whole feature on 2018, and uh, I don't know, I think it's pretty good. I, I encourage readers to take a look at it. But yes, absolutely. Well, very insightful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Find this and more episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, and also on iTunes. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner. Season 6 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. IOT, the Internet of Things. IOT Shipping tracks your value assets using the Internet of Things technology that gives you data points based on temperature, movement, and geolocation. For more information, contact us at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Next up, we speak with Janet Wang on her new book, The Chinese Wine Renaissance. 
I'm Paige Donner. You're listening to Paris, Good Food and Wine. The show is produced and broadcast from Paris, France. It's Paris's first ever homegrown English language radio show about food and wine. This episode of Paris, Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find us at parisfoodandwine.net. Find this and more episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, and also on iTunes. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner. So, bonjour, Janet Wang. Bonjour, Paige. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, it's so exciting because your book has come out just this earlier this year, The Chinese Wine Renaissance. And uh, it seems like the whole wine world is abuzz with what's going on in China. And I have to say, you know, I can only really ask you broad questions because I don't know anything about it, even after speaking with you, at, you know, at length uh, on the subject now over the last uh, couple of hours. But um, what that is such that is a broad subject. What what kinds of things do you tackle in the wine renaissance like can you break down some of your chapters for us yeah sure so um the book title itself uh, with the word uh, renaissance a lot of people have actually asked me why is it called a renaissance because as far as i know um this is a very new thing or actually i didn't even know china produced wine so one of the premise of my book is to introduce the readers to um thousands of years worth of history in China which involved wine because um, if you think about how rich the food culture is in China actually food has always been accompanied with wine or equally the tea culture of China is more well known in, in the West or in, in outside of China but uh, the wine culture um, for some reason um, has always existed and actually is a very colorful part of our culture is part of the um, Chinese psyche but uh, to the outside world, it seems a very new concept. So um, the reason I put the Renaissance word in, in the book title itself is to suggest to the reader, actually, you know, this book is going to tell you far more than what's just been happening in the last, you know, a uh, few decades. This goes back in history for thousands of years. Um, in terms of the uh, actual contents of the book, so the first section, um, I try to deal with the most sort of most relevant to the modern uh, day um, audience, which is where in China can you find grapes <laughs> being grown and made into wine? What are the um, climatic and uh, soil conditions for making wine? And why is it that the modern Chinese wine industry is thriving? So the first section is very much about the here and now. And also the fact that, you know, maybe you know that e-commerce is huge in China. And that has a huge, uh, slightly different impact on the wine industry and how wine is marketed and sold in China, how the consumer uh, interact with wine. Yeah. You know, can I, can I stop you? That's a really interesting point because I know in the United States, for example, there are s really strict laws. Like you can't, you know, a winery, you can buy winery direct, you know, between state, from state to state, but you can't actually, there's a lot, a lot of times you can't like ship from, uh, from Texas to Virginia, but you can buy, but an individual can buy online, I'm talking about, can buy online winery direct. Are there those, and in, and in Canada, it's even worse. 
Um, are there those kinds of barriers in China, or is the e-commerce just sort of like a free-for-all? Oh, yeah. E-commerce in China uh, is pretty much borderless within China. Mm. So that's also why e-commerce e-commerce thrives in China because the uh, delivery service, the logistics companies, they are very, very uh, developed and you can get your goods very fast. Despite the huge size of China, you can get things sometimes within uh, a day or two um, from one end of China to the, the other. So it is quite incredible. And that has really boosted uh, the online digital economy. And in return, you know, wine has really found a space, a, a small space, because wine drinking in China is still quite uh, qu- quite early days. There are very few, uh, very few of the population actually drink wine at the moment, but that's growing all the time. Um, but yeah, so that's a very interesting dynamic, which I talk about in the book. And then the second section of the book is really about the cultural conversation that we could have around wine so how because I grew up in Europe uh, although I, I, I'm, um, I, 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 ha- I was born in China and um, lived in China for a while but what really fascinated me was um, how we have slightly different ways of um, talking about wine topics you know such as terroir such as the the balance um of the 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 wine you know how we talk about tannings and length all that sort of thing so different cultures have slightly different appreciation interpretation of those things and i found it very fascinating uh to to present these sort of uh these sort of topics uh with a twist you know with a chinese twist (laughs) you know that was an interesting word you just taught me and i know i'm not going to say it correctly with the correct intonation so you can you can correct me but what like Chinese for terroir is feng tu feng tu yes we have a word in Chinese called feng tu which literally means uh, the wind and the soil so in a way it's one way that we describe a a location the characteristics the nuances of the land and what it imparts on uh, the produce or how people live and how people you know interact with the natural world etc so that is uh, one concept that I found very easily spoke to me when people described terroir to me at, uh, at first. So, you know, by n- knowing these nuances um, between cultures, you know, sometimes they actually bring uh, the distances closer because suddenly I feel, oh, actually I have a lot in common with uh, with the wine producers of uh, France, you know, so, so it, it's brilliant. So that's an aspect I really enjoy writing about as well. Well, that was something else I was curious about because you seem to have a lot of citations or, you know, quotes within your book um, from pretty illustrious, you know, producers, uh, like especially in the Bordeaux region. Why, why did you go and get quotes from them rather than going, say, to people in, in China? Or did you do both? So I did both, but mostly, as you very correctly uh, pointed out, I actually had more quotes from the Bordeaux producers because, uh, for two reasons. Uh, first, firstly, it's more just practicality because when I was writing or learning about wine, I started from Bordeaux. So I was traveling to Bordeaux. I was interacting a lot more with the Bordeaux producers. And uh, they essentially gave me a lot of inspiration for the topics of the book. So that's one aspect. And also, secondly, um, in fact, Chinese wine producers um, have started out 
um, trying to learn from you know making a good Bordeaux blend. So that's kind of the starting premise for for a lot of them as well. So making a Bordeaux blend seems to be sort of this um, uh, this holy grail in essence for a lot of the Chinese producers as well at, at the beginning. And now they're trying to do their own thing. So when I was writing this was uh, I started back in 2010, 2012 that era, that that sort of time. Um, it just felt like it was a natural fit to talk about, to, to first listen to what the Bordeaux producers have to say. And then later I did throw in a few quotes from, um, from the Chinese producers as well on their interpretation, for example, on Tiehua. Um, but I just found this uh, two-way conversation very interesting. And Bordeaux is fascinating also because over here, they have a very uh, broad global view of the world because Bordeaux wine has had a very long history of selling all over the world. And they know exactly how, uh, well, they, they, they think they do know very well, m better than most of the uh, other wine regions, how to talk and communicate to consumers of different countries. And, um, and this is what really inspired me to write the book because despite the fact that they're so uh, sophisticated in essence in marketing and promotion talking, I found there are still knowledge gaps, you know, or cultural um, assumptions which um, need a little bit of filling in <laughs> or, or, um, or expanding upon, you know. So that's also one of the motivation for me to write this book um, is to... Uh, realize that actually we need a deeper uh, cultural, cross-cultural conversation about wine. Um, yeah, so that's why. So you were telling me a little bit um, in a more nuanced way too about the Mode and Hennessy. So you, you know, we know, we all know, anybody in the wine world knows that Mode and Hennessy is one of the earlier big, con big wine producers to go into China. And you were telling me a little bit in particular about their vineyards, that it's actually like a tea region. Can, can you tell me, can you explain that again a little bit? So, so one of the um, uh, area, well, so LVMH, uh, the, the, the region they chose is called Yunnan province. So Yunnan province historically is famous for tea. Not so much for wine making, but because of the tea uh, plantation, which um, we tea is grown at different altitudes, you know. So they they actually found some uh, some terroir which was suitable for wine growing at higher altitudes. Um, but also part of the reason for them to go there is is historical because um, there's a French uh, missionary um, site where there was a church with a little vineyard where they found some very old European vines. And therefore there was a bit of a wine culture dating back uh, a few hundred years ago. So yeah, so that's part of the reason why they thought, you know, if someone did it here <laughs> before, maybe we should have a look at this land. And of course it's beautiful. This is like the mythical land of the Shangri-La. You know, it's very beautiful, very romantic as a notion. And also the soil and the altitude turned out to be quite suitable. Uh, for 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 wine growing, yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a good story. Yeah. Do you think you know you you've mentioned Bordeaux now several times? Do you think um, and France too? So f this country, well, France, Bordeaux, of course, California, Napa, they're all centers for ono tourism. You know, and wine tourism has just been, as we all know, has been exploding the last uh, couple decades. Do you think that's going to develop as well, like alongside alongside the production of wine in China? Do you think ono tourism? Oh, yes, yes. So that's actually one area that I'm very excited about because um, 
<clears throat> a lot of these wine regions are absolutely beautiful because if you sometimes think about China, especially me, I almost feel it's a bit of a shame that some of the most beautiful parts of China are so crowded with tourists, or you know, the air might not be terribly great when when you、uh, when you go there. But when I go to wine regions in China, this could be like Ningxia or like parts of Shandong or Yunnan, for example, that we just talked about, and Xinjiang to the west. You can still see unspoiled landscapes, you know, wildlife, and、um, and also part of the wine industry in China is directly tackling environmental issues. For example, a lot of land uh, losing, um, being lost to uh, desertification. Uh, they're trying to use wine, the wine growing, the、uh, viticulture as a means to prevent more soil loss. Um, and also, Chinese wineries, a lot of them do plan ahead into the future. So when they design their their wineries, they already have planned for tourism. So a lot of the chateau now,、uh, chateau vineyards now, already have tourist facilities, and they do now attract quite a lot of、uh, domestic tourists already. Yeah. So this is、um, an area that is definitely going to see some growth. So I. I, I Just、uh, just now, I said chateau, <laughs> and you might wonder why I would call call a Chinese、uh, winery a chateau, and that's because a lot of them do actually genuinely build a French chateau, you know, as their visitor center <laughs> and their winery. So、um, yeah, so they are preparing for the tourists. <laughs> It's kind of interesting that they would build a French chateau rather than say、uh, an Italian villa or、uh, <laughs> Napa Valley kind of. <laughs> There's actually a Scottish castle. As well, <laughs> so French、uh, French chateau is the sort of the quintessential、um, look, I suppose. But I I I have a good friend who、uh, who is an English guy who built a Scottish castle in Shandong Province, right next to Lafitte's Chinese property. <laughs> so that's another really good story, and I would yeah recommend you to go go visit him because that that castle itself is also a hotel and a great、uh, venue for weddings, very popular. Well, that's, there's a lot of stuff then to explore, and I know that a lot of that we can probably find on your. You also have a blog, so tell us tell us where to find your blog. Okay, so my blog is on winepeak.com. So that's w i n e p w e k dot com. Winepeak.com. So I'm peeking in <laughs> in the wine world. That's how I felt at the beginning. So,、uh, and over there I write、uh, a little bit about China, but also、uh, just. E- Yeah, just any regions that I find interesting as well, any wines that I find interesting. So yeah, it's a quite a, quite a, quite a casual <laughs> sort of blog. But uh, yeah, um, the other thing I、uh, was going to say about the book is、uh, we talked about the first two sections, so I'll just carry on saying the third section is more、um, about the historical context. So I, it's called the vertical tasting of China. So vertical tasting, because I literally. Take the readers on a journey of five thousand years worth of history and interesting stories in history that's related to wine. And the reason why I wanted to throw that in is because I think by reading wine stories, you can actually get a pretty good narrative of the entire history of China. So I I sometimes find you know a lot of my Western、uh, friends they find they really want to learn about China, but they just find it a bit. Difficult to get into, you know. Whereas I thought, if we use wine as a protagonist of the story, and let them just read about wine stories, but also with a historical back backdrop, actually they will 
end up knowing the main dynasties, the main characters in history, some of the most famous books and all that sort of thing. And I want to use that section to really highlight the fact that wine is so integrated into every aspect of Chinese life, you know, life, politics, arts, religion, music, you know, all sorts of things. So having an understanding of wine culture, the history of wine culture in China actually gives you a very solid grounding in understanding China yeah, in general. So, yeah, so I, I, I used to say to my, when my book was um, going to the publishers, they said, can you write a little one sen- sentence to sum up what the book is about? And I said, if you like wine or if you have heard of China, then this is the book for you because you really don't need to know very much, you know. If you've heard of the place or you like wine, you know, then you can read this book. <laughs> and yeah, it's not just for wine wine professionals or wine lovers. E- even if you have a mild interest uh, in Chinese history, I, I think this might be an e- easier read than, say, a, a, a textbook on Chinese history. <laughs> well, I love that, that phrase that you just uh, came up with, the a wine as a protagonist. That's great. And then, and now you're kind of like a wine and China advocate all wrapped into one. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's it, really. I mean, because how I got into wine was really to, um, uh, from, from, from a, um, a desire to bring this cultural dialogue, you know, uh, together between Chinese, uh, Chinese people and Western, Western friends that I have over here. And I found the easiest way sometimes to explain a concept uh, is through a, a wine analogy. And that's how I found wine is so fascinating, you know, because it's literally something that can bring all sorts of cultures closer. Yeah, so... Well, hey, thanks so much, Janet, for taking the time to talk to Paris Good Food and Wine. (laughs) Thank you so much, Paige. Yeah, my pleasure. This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find us at parisfoodandwine.net. Find this and more episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, and also on iTunes. IoT Shipping. IoT Shipping uses the Internet of Things technology to track and trace your value assets throughout the transport process. Data is monitored by temperature, geolocation, and movement so that you always know where your value assets are and in what condition they are in. Contact them for more information and for a quote at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. A big thank you to all who helped make this show possible. And especially a grand merci beaucoup from me, your host and producer, Paige Donner. You can find this and past episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to follow us on Instagram at PageFoodWine and on Twitter at ParisFoodWine. Leave us a review, comments, suggestions, and story pitches at ParisFoodAndWines.com.